0: Hi, everybody. Mark Mavsessian here. I'm the co-director of the Center for Law and Religion at St. John's, and I'm joined once again by my friend and colleague, Mark DiGirolami, who's the center's other co-director, for an episode of Legal Spirits, which is our podcast series on cases and issues in law and religion. You can find past episodes archived on our website, forum that's one word, .org, and also on streaming platforms like Apple and Uh, Android and Spotify and lots of other uh, streaming platforms that uh, our students have set up that that Mark and I don't know that much about, but you can find us in a lot of places. Well, this is going to be our last episode of the calendar year, and we thought we'd focus on a recent controversy involving some comments by the Speaker of the House of Representatives, the newly elected Speaker Mike Johnson. So last month, Speaker Johnson caused a stir during an interview with CNBC, which is the business channel. Uh, And during the interview, the host asked Johnson about the fact that Johnson was seen praying on the House floor. And the host asked Johnson, you know, didn't that violate the separation of church and state? So in this episode, Mark and I will discuss Speaker Johnson's comments and the controversy they've created. In fact, as we're going to explain This is the latest episode in a long-running controversy about what the establishment clause of the First Amendment means, and also what the purpose of the clause is. As I tell my 1Ls every year, you can't know the meaning of a rule, a legal rule, unless you know the reason the rule exists, and I think this is a pretty good example of of that principle. It turns out that Americans have been disagreeing about what anti-establishment means, and why we have anti-establishment as a constitutional principle right from the beginning, even before we had a First Amendment. Everybody agrees, and pretty much everybody has always agreed, that we shouldn't have an established religion at the national level. There's no significant debate about that. And nowadays, I think most people would say we shouldn't have an established religion at the state level either. But what the commitment to non-establishment entails and why we have it is up for grabs and it always has been. And we're gonna show that by looking at a famous historical controversy that Supreme Court watchers know about uh, because the Supreme Court has cited this controversy as a good uh, bit of evidence for what the Establishment Clause means, namely the Virginia assessment fight in the 1780s, which sheds a lot of light on this issue. As I say, this is a very old issue. So Mark, do you wanna say anything before we- Sure, yeah,
1: this is gonna be a lot of fun, uh, Mark. I'm looking forward to this. This is one of those uh, perennial perennial fights uh, that uh, seems to pop up uh, all the time what the meaning of the establishment clause is and what it represents and um, and I agree with virtually everything that you've said except I think in my uh, uh, comments uh, I'm gonna uh, suggest a reason that uh, we, we we don't really know what the principle of anti-establishment is um, and uh, uh, you know it, it, it might be uh, it might be interesting to talk about what the uses of um, the uses of tradition, so to speak, or traditional practices in the past, uh, why people are asking about them, why people continue to fight about them, why people continue to contest what the past means and what it means for the present. I think all of that is going to be in this podcast in one way or another as we talk about this uh, latest latest controversy uh uh which seems to pop up you know every 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 few years
0: yeah well that great i think it's going to be a fun podcast so and i think uh, listeners you'll you'll see that mark and i both agree and disagree uh with respect to some of these things so i think it'll be an interesting discussion well okay let's let's talk about speaker johnson's comments so as i say uh, speaker johnson was giving an interview to cnbc the business channel Um, And the host asked a question at the end of the interview and said, you know, this is really isn't about business, but, you know, you've been seen praying on the House floor. And um, while religion is very important in one's private capacity, do you think this is really appropriate? I mean, is is this consistent with the separation of church and state? And here's what Johnson said in response. He said, faith is a big part of what it means to be an American. The founders wanted a vibrant expression of faith in the public square because they believed that a general moral consensus in virtue was necessary to maintain this grand experiment in self-governance. I think he meant the American self-government. And then he continued, he said, The separation of church and state is a misnomer. People misunderstand it. It comes from a phrase that was in a letter Jefferson wrote. It's not in the Constitution. And what he was explaining is, that is what Jefferson was explaining is, They didn't want the government to encroach upon the church, not that they didn't want principles of faith to have influence on our public life. And here Speaker Johnson quoted George Washington and John Adams. And Johnson said, uh, we need more faith in politics. And he continued by saying, not an establishment of any national religion. I'm I'm quoting Johnson again, not an establishment of any national religion, but we need everybody's vibrant expression of faith because it's such an important part of who we are as a nation, end quote. Now, a number of commentators objected to what Speaker Johnson said. For some commentators, what Speaker Johnson said suggested that he, that is Johnson, is a Christian nationalist, that that he seeks to impose a racist, patriarchal, evangelical Christian theocracy. Other commentators objected less hyperbolically, and they said, look, his comments are hopelessly old-fashioned, and inconsistent with religious freedom in a pluralist society, and wrong, because Johnson's understanding is not what the framers intended. Okay, so we're going to talk about this. I'll just say it right at the beginning. We're going to leave aside the question uh, whether Johnson is a Christian nationalist. I think we'd need to spend a whole episode uh, to define what that phrase means exactly, and and whether Johnson, who definitely has taken some, some strong, you could even say extreme, positions on culture war issues, um, whether he would qualify. I just wanna focus on, on the comments as such. And I should say, I know people think that it's wrong to do that because you know Johnson is sort of, he's more extreme than he appears, but I think it's useful just to focus um, on his comments as such. To my mind, um, Johnson is both right and wrong, which I guess means his critics are both wrong and right. Okay, so let me, let me start off and then I'll ask Mark to, to jump in. How is Johnson right? Well, I think Johnson's comments, in fact, reflect an important stream in American thought on church and state relations. He's advocating a non-preferential support for religion in public life, not the establishment of any one religion, but a general openness to and even privilege for religion generally. And here's the important thing. The reason why uh, he supports, he's advocating this non-preferential support is as a way to promote self-government. And this is a position that many of the framers held and that was conventional, I think, even a generation or so ago in American life. You might call it an evangelical approach, but it has not been limited to evangelical Christians. Um, At the time of the framing, it was associated with Patrick Henry, uh, George Washington, John Adams. Alexander Hamilton and John Jay, as I said, these these people were not really evangelicals. I guess Patrick Henry was maybe, but the others were not. Um, They all took the position that actually you needed to promote religion as a public matter, as a way to promote a moral citizenry, because only a moral citizenry can support democratic self-government. So Johnson is right insofar as, as this was what many of the framers thought. He's also right, I think, that the phrase "separation of church and state, well, he's certainly right about this, is not in the Constitution, uh, that it, uh, that this phrase comes from a letter that Thomas Jefferson wrote. Uh, the Supreme Court picked up the phrase in Jefferson's letter somewhat by accident in the 19th century. our Our friend uh, Don Drakeman has written about this. So Johnson's right about that. And I think Johnson's also right that when he says that at the time of the framing, Many Americans would have seen the separation of church and state, to the extent they understood the concept, uh, the way that, that we understand it today, as protecting the church, not the state. And this is an idea that goes all the way back um, to Roger Williams, really. Okay, so in all of that, I think Johnson was correct in what he said, and his critics are wrong when they, when they criticize him for this. Okay, but in another sense, Johnson is also wrong, and his critics are right. And here where he's wrong, I think, is in suggesting that this was the only view at the time of the framing, the view that I've just described, because there were also those at the time of the framing who believed that the purpose of anti-establishment was to promote rationality in government and to insulate politics from religious enthusiasm. So, you know, Roger Williams and those people thought you've got to you've got to protect the garden of the state from the wilderness outside There were people who thought you have to protect the state from religious fanatics. And and this is a more Lockean or Enlightenment view. And I think in this camp, you would put, of course, Jefferson, um, but also James Madison, maybe Benjamin Franklin. And there were some others. In other words, where Johnson is wrong is that the framers disagreed on exactly what it meant to say, as our First Amendment says, no establishment of religion. Both sides, I think it's important to say, both sides believed in religious liberty but they disagreed on exactly what religious liberty requires. So that's what I would say as a start, Mark. What do you think?
1: Okay, good. So just a couple of thoughts here because I also think that you are right and wrong, both right and wrong. So I agree with you in part, but I think I take a a little bit of a different view on on some things or maybe a different angle. So when you say, how is Johnson right or wrong? um, Really in, in what you've said, I think there are two ways of taking that question And as I'll explain, I think one affects the other. One question affects the other question, but I think at least initially, it's important to keep them separate. One way, one thing to ask is whether Johnson is right historically about what the framers believe, just as a descriptive matter about, as a a historical descriptive matter about the kind of view of the interaction between religion and state or church and state that they had. That's one issue. A second way is to ask, about which view of religion and state Johnson's view and the view that he ascribes to Washington and Adams or the view that you've talked about as Henry's view or the other view that uh, is associated with Jefferson and Madison and that his critics perhaps take up. whether Which one is the better view, the more civically, politically, morally attractive view? So you could take Johnson and his comments that you've just read not to be saying something like this is the only view that anybody at the founding held and there were no other real options or everybody was uniform in believing everybody at the founding only believed what i believed um but instead to say look my view is the best reading of the founding it's the prevailing view it's the view that we ought to adopt that we can best reconstruct from the founding and the one that best reflects our own tradition. So I I think Johnson and Johnson's critics might be blending these two issues, uh, and they do so in order, I think, to give authority or weight to their preferred moral or political position. It reminds me of an essay that I wrote a while back, actually, Mark, concerning this phrase in the Treaty of Tripoli, uh, uh, which which says this treaty that was that was made with the, you know, with the with, with Libya, what was then Libya and the sort of the Barbary uh area. The Barbary, I think
0: with the Barbary pirates. The right?
1: Barbary Barbary pirates, basically to 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 protect uh seafaring and sea trading. Um, and one of the phrases that was included there was that the United States is in no sense a Christian nation. And so this has always been picked up by um, you, we said we weren't going to talk about Christian nationalism and so, but this was always been picked up by the by the so-called opponents of Christian. Nash. See, I told you, you know, that we're not a Christian nation because it was in this in, in this treaty from way back when. Now, again, one question is, what did this mean as a historical matter? But a second question, and I think the question that really matters to people is um, what kind of what kind of country ought to we ought we to be now? Um, uh, and I think all of this tells you something important about the crucial role of the past. So when we argue about the past, especially a path that we want to think is in some ways, although of course not always, but in some important ways, continuous with or of a piece with our present, what we're really doing is engaging in a kind of proxy fight about what our best present selves ought to be like. So this isn't really a fight between Johnson and the critics about the past as historical fact. It's a fight about the past's true or best presence in the present and, and in the future. It's about the way the patterns of past practice that are most reflective or best reflective or the noblest of what the country has to offer in the way of thinking about church and state. What do you think about all that, Mark? Do you think that seems right?
0: Well, yeah, look, Mark, I think that's a very insightful point. You know, um, uh, you can look at this and say this is just a historical debate, but of course, Mike Johnson is not a professor. He is the Speaker of the House, and you're quite right that people sense an agenda behind his use of history. And I guess what you're saying here is when it comes to these sorts of questions, history is always forensic. And, you know, we're not just dispassionately looking for the past because we. We are explicitly or implicitly looking to the past as evidence for what we should be today. Uh, that, is a, that is a nice point. And of course, that explains why people are so upset by what Speaker Johnson said. If he were just a history professor, or a high school professor, they might think, okay, whatever, that's just your understanding of history. And by the way, history is argument without end, right? And, and that's an example. This is an example of that. But what gets people upset is the fact that we all know that Mike Johnson has an agenda, just as his critics have an agenda, and each side is trying to use history to advance it. I think that is a fair point.
1: So I think you're right, Mark, and this is actually, in my own mind, the appeal of tradition. Right i, I won't I won't forego any opportunity to talk about tradition, as as you know. Um, but uh, you know, tradition for me is reflected in enduring p- practices of the past that form sort of patterns of behavior over long periods of time so that when we engage in those traditions today, whether it's legislative prayer or prayer practices or whatever it is, we sort of gain strength in the conviction that they're right and true and good because we can connect them to what we think of as admired or honored Americans of the past and what they did and what they believed. And that's true for Johnson. That's exactly what he's trying to do with the past. But um, it's also, and actually this is kind of interesting, I think, it's just as true for the critics. You know, I, it's been my experience that critics, you say tradition, they sort of scoff at tradition and they say, oh, you know, we we know so much more than they did then and the country's so different, it's such a different place and so on. But look at how they too try to um, connect uh the past they they find great authority and persuasive value in the past and trying to connect it to the, uh, the 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 present as sort of determinative of present and future value so they also are appealing to tradition they also want to connect what they think virtuous in church state relations today to the patterns of past practice that they admire and value and want to preserve in today's america do you what do you think about that mark
0: well i agree and i want to give you a very good example as i said at the beginning of the podcast so uh, i want to talk about a historical example uh which i guess we'd say more secularist americans tend to look to as an example and again it's it's looking to tradition not simply in a in an abstract way but because this is a tradition that would support the position that this side favors, and that's the Virginia assessment controversy of the 1780s. So anyone who studies American church and state law knows this controversy because the Supreme Court of the United States has said in the past, I guess it was in Everson, right, Mark? That they yeah, said was it was in yeah,
1: 1947. That's right, that,
0: that this is the historical example that tells us what the Establishment Clause is all about. So in the 1780s, a Patrick Henry proposed a bill in the Virginia legislature to tax Virginia citizens in order to, um, to give money to clergy, to, pay, to help defray clergy salary. Now, it was non preferential. The taxpayer could select which church he wanted, and it was he in those days, which church he wanted to give them money to. But it was going to be public monies going to the clergy. And the idea was that we have to strengthen public morality. You know, the period of the 1780s was a very divisive period in American life. People thought this whole experiment in democratic revolution was going to end. And people said, the only way we're gonna have a democratic government here, the only way we can have democratic self-government is if we have a moral people. And for a moral people, you need religion. No religion, no morality. That's what Patrick Henry said, and that's what many people at the time believed. I think some people still believe that, although obviously not, not everybody does any longer. And Patrick Henry was the main supporter of this. Okay, so was this consistent with religious liberty, giving public monies to clergy? Uh, Let's ask the question this way. Did Patrick Henry think it was consistent? Of course he did. I mean, Patrick Henry is, you know, give me liberty or give me death. That's Patrick Henry. So obviously he thought religious liberty was important. He just didn't see this as inconsistent with religious liberty because it was non-preferential and because people could continue to worship as they wanted and besides there was an important public interest here. We needed a moral citizenry. Okay, that was one side of the debate. James Madison, Thomas Jefferson, others opposed this assessment um, and eventually prevailed. The Virginia assessment bill didn't pass and the Supreme Court has pointed to this as an example of you see, this is what the framers meant. They meant no public money uh, for clergy and I guess in a broader way, no public money for religion generally. This is this is kind of what America's uh, America's commitment to anti-establishment means. Now, here's the interesting thing. So, in my class, and I'm I'm sure in your class too, on church and state, Mark, um, I assign Madison's famous Remonstrance against the Virginia Assessment Bill, and the interesting thing is in that famous document. Madison makes both evangelical arguments and enlightenment arguments for the separation of church and state, which means like any good advocate, Madison knew he had to appeal to both sides because he knew some Virginians would support him for one reason and some Virginians would support him for a different reason. People were divided on on the question why we don't have an establishment of religion. So for example, Madison argued on the one hand Establishment would corrupt the Christian church, right, that the reason we have a separation of church and state in America is we want to protect the garden of the church from the corruption that state involvement with religion has inevitably caused in history and, and Madison actually goes back to Rome and goes back you know to the constantinian period and says look look what the establishment of religion has done it creates a lazy clergy it creates a corrupt citizenry you know it doesn't promote christianity true christianity pure christianity he makes that argument on the other hand Madison also makes the argument that religion could corrupt the state that we have to make we have to be very careful not to let religion interfere with with public life, because that can also lead to tyranny, which, of course, was a word that Patrick Henry also wanted to avoid, tyranny. So what's my point here? My point here is that if you see Madison arguing, he's arguing because he knows Americans are divided on this question. And so to prevail, he's got to appeal to people on both sides of the question. If you fast forward to today, I think you see the same thing. I think we all agree today, most Americans would agree religious liberty is very important. And we have an anti-establishment provision in order to promote religious liberty. And everybody agrees that it doesn't, that, that, you know, the constitution doesn't permit an established church where we disagree is exactly what that entails. And importantly, I think we disagree on why we have the principle. Anyway, what do you think of all that Mark?
1: So um, uh, most of, I agree again with most of everything that you've said with maybe one difference and, and um and I'm curious about how you see this difference. Maybe it's not a difference, but, but um, anyway, let, let's try it out. So I, I think that the reason that we have this, these disagreements is that we actually don't have a principle of disestablishment. Um, and we've never had such a principle, no matter how much scholars of the establishment clause have wished that we have had such a principle, which could then be superimposed upon the country and you know different practices sorted out. Um, What we have, um, as I think you just said quite correctly, we have some agreements about practices that the government cannot engage in, like the creation of a national church, Um, uh, and perhaps some other kinds of practices that people could generally agree on. But coercion, most, for
0: like coercion, for example, I think most people would well, say, that's no, a
1: principle," and so I, 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 okay. I would not, I would not accept that. I mean, okay. so I, 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 there are some coercive practices that I would think, you know, putting people in jail, in prison, unless they affirm certain kinds of commitments, um, right? And that that would be a practice that would involve coercion, but it wouldn't be the principle that is enshrined or that is elevated or whatever it is, it's practices that people could agree. But mostly what we have are many disagreements about the kinds of practices that are acceptable. Um, What we also have are different views about what the contested practices, the practices that we disagree about, like congressmen praying in Congress, apparently, what what those say about the character of American citizenship. So we have views about character and virtue, uh, personal qualities, personal virtues, vices, and what the practices that we engage in suggest about the kinds of citizenry that we have, about the kinds of citizens that we are, that we're becoming. To me, that's what these fights are really about. They're not about abstract principles or or the the distillation of a single principle Um, They are instead really about the reconstruction of our traditions in order to think about who we Americans really are and what we ought to be. So that that I think that's the way that I would put this fight more than a fight about principle.
0: Yeah, I'm not sure. I think we're approaching the problem just from different different starting points. So I'm starting from the position that, okay, we have this establishment clause in the Constitution. It is a text. It is a rule. It must mean something. Um, And we all sort of agree that it means certain things, but we disagree about other things. Now, I will say, I don't think anybody at the time of the framing would have objected to a congressman publicly praying on the House floor. I don't think anybody would have objected to that. But we did have other... I mean, you know, Philip Munoz has a nice new book out in which he talks about the disagreements that the framers had at the time uh, about what the Establishment Clause meant. I mean, Philip also says... And there's really no good indication in the ratification history of the Establishment Clause that they ever, they ever made that more concrete, right? Probably because they didn't really want to go down that path, that is the framers. Uh, but we have a kind of agreement at the 30,000-foot level, but we just don't agree with what that entails with respect to specific questions. I understand you approach it from the opposite perspective.
1: And, and I would just say, so I'm channeling some remarks in a, from a book by Steve Smith years ago it was called foreordained failure. Uh, and what was the foreordained failure? It was, was, was foreordained that we would never get to, that we could never get to a principle or a general abstraction that would cover all of the issues or all of the kinds of questions on which people agree that would then sort out all of our disagreements neatly according to the principle.
0: Yeah, again, I, I'm not sure. I, I I don't disagree with what you say. I, I just I think I'm approaching it. Okay, let's start with the text, let's start with the principle, where you're saying let's start with the practices. That's really what we have to start
1: with. I want to start with the text too. I just don't want to go to any principle from the from the text. So I think I, what, I think that the text what the text does, is, is it is it an it is an expression of the kinds of practices that people thought might not be okay. Uh, And and also correlatively of the ones that might be okay, but not, you know, it doesn't say in the in the Constitution, um, you know, Congress shall not coerce anyone with respect to religion or Congress shall not Congress shall keep uh, church and state separate or something like that. It talks about something very concrete in establishments. Right. Congress shall make no right. Make no law respecting an establishment of religion. And to me, that sounds like a thing. It sounds like some stuff that people do, not some big abstract idea that they didn't even know what it was. Yeah. So I
0: think what you're saying, if I understand you, which this is very interesting, I think what you're saying is so I'm saying we have a principle and the different practices are examples of of what's in and out. And you're saying, no, no, the print, the, the practices are themselves constitutive of the text. Right. That's interesting. I mean, again, I think we're just approaching the same problem from different directions. I mean, um, I, I mean, that's just how I kind of maybe I just have a more formal approach to these kinds of things. I never thought of myself as that much of a formalist, but maybe I, I am in this respect. And and that's um, look. So, you know, listeners, as I said at the beginning, history is argument without end. And so is constitutional law argument without end, really. Um, and you see that here. And that brings us back to the original point I made at the start, which is the current controversy over what Speaker Johnson said. It is really it is the latest episode in a long debate about what the establishment clause means and actually how we determine the meaning, Mark.
1: It goes it goes, as we've said, it goes all the way back, at least as far as the Treaty of Tripoli, right? I mean, so people have been having these same fights.
0: Well, right? it goes back it goes back to the Virginia assessment controversy, which is like twenty years before the Treaty exactly. of Tripoli. Quite right. Uh, And it goes back to Roger Williams and, you know, it goes back a long, long way right um, here. And we just have this creative, I would call it a creative tension, but I understand that some people think it's not a creative tension. It could be a real, real problem depending on where you come down. Okay. Well, I think that'll be it for this episode. I guess this will be the last episode of the calendar year. So I want to take the opportunity, Mark, to wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And I want to say that to all our listeners who celebrate, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year to you all.
1: Merry Christmas to you, Mark, and also to all, all our listeners. And and we'll be back uh, with more more content uh, uh, in the new year. And we're, we're very excited uh, uh, about all of that.
0: Yeah, hopefully the Supreme Court will give us some some content. I mean, it's been it's the spring has really dried up this year. I guess they did so many they, they've decided so many church and state cases in the last two, three terms. They started to take a breather.
1: That's probably right. And uh, maybe I'm, I'm told that perhaps we can expect some late uh, additions, but, you know, uh, I'm not sure how reliable those those assurances
0: are. Oh, you've got some private sources. Well, after we, <laughs> after we go offline, I want to find out who these sources are because I don't have the same sources. Anyway, uh, listeners, we want to thank you again for listening to us and being such loyal listeners for the whole calendar year 2023. We hope you come back in 2024 because we'll have more episodes of Legal Spirits our podcast series on cases and issues in law and religion. You can find past episodes archived on our website, lawandreligionforum.org, and also on streaming platforms like Apple iTunes and Android and Spotify and plenty of others. Uh, But until next time, until next year, that's it for Legal Spirits this time. See you next time.